Hi, welcome to episode eight of uh, the Wilderness Medic podcast. Today I'm joined by Lottie Koreshi and uh, Lizzie Wilson, who are a pair of junior doctors who I met up in Liverpool whilst we were studying for the Diploma in Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, which was pre-COVID. Um, and today they're joining me live from the Greek island of uh, Lesbos, uh, where they've been working with the charity Katrinos Healthcare. Welcome to the Wilderness Medic Podcast. Check out our website at www.thewildernessmedic.com. Expedition Resources, Wilderness Medicine Blog, and much more. Welcome, how are you guys doing? Great, yeah, thanks yeah. for asking us to come on. Oh no, thanks, thanks for coming on. Um, and uh, you were telling me just before we started recording that the weather in... Uh, in Greece is somewhat better than where I am in Wales. <laughs> yes, it's a sort of sunny 32 degrees, I'd say, at the moment. That's pretty nice. And um, what's it like at the moment uh, in terms of uh, of COVID in, in Lesbos? Um, so we're having about 12 cases a day in the local hospital recorded for the island at the moment. Um, and that doesn't sound like many cases, but that's actually quite a steep increase from what we've had recently. Um, the island had been COVID free for about three months. But in the last two weeks, since tourism has reopened, uh, we've started having a lot more cases. Uh, so Greece as a country recorded its highest number of cases today at 284. We mm. luckily haven't had any cases confirmed in the camp that we're working in so far. Um, but we're really ramping up our infection control and really focusing all our efforts on stopping COVID from getting into the camp when we know it's just a few metres outside. Yeah, and you mentioned about tourism. Obviously, there's this kind of conflict well, everywhere at the moment, isn't there, with how, how do you kind of reboot tourism but also contain COVID, and particularly, I suppose, in the small island economies that must be uh, particularly difficult at times. Yeah, I think it has been quite a difficult decision for the local governments here because they were very strict with their lockdowns very early on and actually did very well to contain COVID on the island for the citizens living here and also for all of the people who are in the camps. But I guess there comes a point everywhere where the economy um, has to start to have more of a focus again. So tourism started to open up towards the end of June. Um, and I guess as a result of that, we are starting to see a few more cases. Um, I guess in terms of specifically protecting the camp, the camp remains in lockdown. Um, there's been a lockdown on the people inside the camp that prevents them from leaving since the beginning of March, uh, which is definitely having a massive, massive toll on them for obvious reasons. Mm. I think we all know how difficult yeah. it was to live in lockdown. Yeah, definitely. And um, can you tell me a bit about about the camp. So this is Moira camp, isn't it? Is that right? Yeah, so Moria um, has been around since, well, Moria camp has been around since sort of 2015 when the migrant crisis really kicked off. Um, at the moment, so we did a, they did a census in July of this year um, and put the current population in the camp at about 15,000. Um, and this is in a camp that was built for 3,000 people, so hugely running over capacity. Um, yeah. Quite a, an interesting population demographic. So 40% of the uh, camp's population are under 16 years old years of age, so it's quite a young population. 
Um, and these are mainly people that have fled from Afghanistan, Syria, and then also from the DRC and Somalia, predominantly. Um, and it's kind of set up where sort of the most vulnerable people are living in sort of shipping container type uh, accommodation. But that's only a very small number of people. Uh, and the majority of people that live in Mario Camp are in sort of handmade um, tents. Mm. Uh, just sort of in the olive grove surrounding the, the actual camp itself. Okay. So there's this, yeah, that's a huge number of people mm. for some for a resource that was designed for, for a lot fewer. And then I suppose you add in a new infectious disease, that, that's uh, very difficult to kind of uh, control that. And you mentioned earlier on about um, sort of infection control. That must be obviously super important. Um how is that working in, in the camps? Because it sounds like there's so many people in such an enclosed space. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, you know, we, all, we all know the government advice, you know, of staying 1.5 metres away from anyone else at all times. Um, you know, and in a in a area like, like the camp is almost impossible to achieve um, and quite unrealistic. Um, you've got, mm. you know, 15,000 people living in quite a small area. Um, in some cases, you have families of six people living in sort of three square meters. Um, and even if you were able to isolate in your own tent or in your own accommodation, people are queuing sort of three times a day for their meals. Um, they're queuing for the toilets, they're queuing for the showers. So there's really no way to avoid the masses kind of in this situation. Um, you know, and, and in terms of sanitation and hygiene, you've got up to 160 people for one bathroom for one toilet so it, it does present a real challenge you know on a normal day let alone when there's the threat of an infectious disease pandemic um, kind of on the horizon. yeah yeah absolutely and um in terms of like hand washing stations and, and you mentioned the sanitation and, and that sort of thing um there's obviously a huge number of people washing their hands and that sort of thing is and is, is the camp sort of reasonably set up to to manage that um no (laughs) is the bottom line so i don't think we have the specific statistics on sinks but certainly for toilets if you're talking about 160 people per toilet the ratios for sinks are fairly similar Mm. and i think the other thing Mm. to say is all of the sinks that there are are concentrated in the main kind of hub of the camp where say our clinic is uh where unhcr are working and actually, the reality is the majority of the population are living sprawled out quite some distance onto the olive groves uh, where there's no running water at all. So even what's there is not particularly well distributed. Um, so, yeah, no, hand washing is a massive, massive problem. We're doing what we can in terms of distributing alcohol gel and distributing masks and being as strict as we can on mask etiquette. But th- there's no easy answer to it. No, which I suppose makes it more impressive that at least touch wood at the moment uh, uh, there haven't been any any cases within within the camp. Yeah. Uh, so, so how did you you two both get in, involved with uh, with this project? Did you have it in mind when when we were back up in in Liverpool? How did how did you you kind of get get to where you are now? Um, so, I first worked with Kitchenos in July of two thousand and eighteen. Um, that was at the end of my first year working. I wanted some humanitarian experience and the migrant crisis seemed like an obvious place to get my first foot in the door there. 
So that's how I first started working with Kitchenos. Um, at that point, they were quite a small NGO, quite new to the camp. The camp itself only had five to 6,000 people and the people who were living there were moving on quite quickly through Europe. Um, and then I went back a year later last year and spent some more time volunteering in the camp. Um, and I guess it's just gone from there. And then Lizzie and I were in Liverpool together <laughs> earlier this year. And then with everything that's happened with the pandemic and previous travel plans, um, essentially the doctors who were here, most of them had to leave and go back to substantive posts all over the world. So there was a huge vacuum in terms of healthcare professionals who were able to travel and who were able to stay here providing the healthcare service. Um, so it felt like kind of an obvious place, certainly for me as somewhere I'd worked before to come back and be able to help. Well, that, sound, that sounds excellent. And uh, I guess it's uh, it's obviously changed in terms of the uh, the number of uh, like the population growth since since you first first went. Has it has it changed in any other ways over those two years? Do you think? Um, so yeah, the population fluctuates. The highest number was actually in sort of February March this year. There was about twenty two thousand people in the camp. So that is obviously a huge difference from where it was when we started. Mm. Um, and I guess the charity has grown with the demand. So when I first came, we'd just have two doctors on a shift and that was kind of fine to see everyone who needed to be seen. Um, when I was here at the end of last year, if we were working at full capacity, we were needing 12 doctors a day, um, which is somewhat similar to now. We've expanded our services to an extent. Um, so Kitchenos has always been there to provide primary care as its key focus um, to be the kind of general practice of the camp. But we're now also providing oh, okay. care as well. So, yeah, we have expanded over mm. the years. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I was going to ask a bit about the sorts of sort of things you do. So I suppose, do you, do you, do you work on like a rotor system? Is it on calls? How, how does that side of things work? Um, it's, it's very dependent. So because of COVID and the complete lack of doctors we actually ended up pooling together with the two other NGOs on the island and creating sort of one group roster just to try and fill as many hours of the day as we could we had to cut out all weekend care um, which wasn't an easy decision but we just didn't have the staff um, to be able to staff things outside of nine to five Monday to Friday um, last okay. few weeks we've managed to go back to full day and evening shifts Monday to Friday and we're currently building back to our weekend shift so we're doing a Sunday afternoon shift and as time goes on and we have more staff um, we'll move back towards a seven day rotor rotating uh, doctors on and off but at the moment we're all working five or six days a week Sure and, and which are the other two NGOs who you've been doing that with? Uh, so the Boat Refugee Foundation um, are a Dutch NGO that we've always worked quite closely with here. They provide the evening emergency cover. Um, and then MSF are also here um, and they focus on seeing children during the daytime and they also provide a lot of the maternity care for the camp. And mental health. Oh, okay, sure. And I imagine given a lot of the population are under 16, like you're saying, that they're obviously kept kept quite busy as well um and what sort of things would you see on a on sort of your normal normal clinic day um so normally in the kind of chronic primary care clinic um i would say probably 40 percent of what we see is kind of mental health related 
um, some sort of manifestation of a, of a mental health problem. Um, but we also see, you know, you're pretty standard stuff that you would see in any GP clinic at home. So people with high blood pressure, diabetes, um, chronic conditions, chronic pain, um, you know, you see sort of occasionally minor injuries and things like this. Um, there's a lot of uh, skin conditions, obviously with the, the living conditions in the camp, um, things like mm. gabies and sort of infectious skin conditions spread very rapidly. So you do see quite a lot of that as well. Yeah, no, I guess you, you, you definitely must do. And I suppose in terms of like chronic disease management, um, say, say you've got a hypertensive or a diabetic and, and you need to start them on, I don't know, an ACE inhibitor or metformin, how, how does it work in terms of follow-up and just the whole logistical side of organising, you know, medical records and follow-up when you've got 15,000 yeah. uh, people in, in the camp? So it's obviously a, a little bit different to how it is at home. Um, yeah. you know, we are sort of the main point of care for a lot of their healthcare. Um, a lot of the camp population don't have access to a mobile phone or any real way of uh, uh, contacting. What we tend to do is um, schedule follow-up appointments for patients to come back into the clinic um, when we're getting them established on, on treatment regimes and stuff. Um, you know, we're always sort of in the camp every day so people can come back uh, when they need to. Um, uh, in terms of paperwork and medical records, uh, we will fill in a performer every time a patient visits the clinic um, with sort of their, their problems and what treatment we've given them and what follow up we've arranged. Um, and then we found that the easiest way is actually for the patient to keep hold of those records um, and bring them back next time they come to see us, which usually works with kind of varying levels yeah. of reliability <laughs> on a good day a good patient will bring yeah. us all their medical records yeah. which is always helpful i think it's probably the, the best way of doing it at the moment yeah yeah no, that's a good system it would even work quite well in the nhs i reckon as well <laughs> but uh that's another another discussion <laughs> for another time and and i suppose what do you do if uh if someone who's uh in the camp maybe not uh, you know they're not really recognised by the Greek government, but and they come come to you and you see them. Anything actually? You know you need onward care at say, with whichever department or or A and E. How do you how do you uh, make referrals? Does that all work, or is it a bit of a tricky situation sometimes? Um, so if it's sort of life threatening emergency care, it's relatively straightforward. We'll transfer the patient to the local hospital um, in the city here. And they'll be treated um, free at the point of access of care for their emergency care. Any prescriptions or medicines they need on discharge, they'll bring back to us and we'll supply those medications from the clinic. Um, the harder area is sort of semi-urgent secondary care, where certainly at the moment we don't have any access at all. Um, so if we have patients where we suspect they have a malignancy, uh, we have a number of patients who are quite obviously requiring palliative care. Uh, unfortunately, there's there's really nothing in terms of onwards referral to secondary care or specialist opinions that we can organise, um, which is probably one of the hardest things, actually, um, because as a healthcare professional, you want to do the best for the patient. And often you really can't offer them the same standard of care that we would at home. Um, there's certain systems in place for very particular diseases, say for TB, uh, we can organized for a mantu test and a chest x-ray in kind of a eight to ten week time frame from when we see the patient 
Um, but certainly for things like cardiac or respiratory diseases, which mm. would benefit from secondary care, we just don't have those facilities. Yeah, that must be must be very difficult. And as you say, yeah, really frustrating when you want to sort of be able to deliver a certain standard of care, I guess. But at least, I suppose at least you're able to to do something. As otherwise, it sounds like from what you're saying, there wouldn't really be anyone to to care at the you know care for these patients in the camps. So I think it's really valuable what you're doing. Yeah. And is there is there a similar service sort of for for HIV and other diseases you mentioned about the TB? Um, HIV care is very difficult, so we don't it, yeah. as much as we would like to because having access to the blood tests is very restricted. Um, mm. And actually, there's no treatment available for bloodborne viruses on the island. So if we do have a patient that's diagnosed with hepatitis or with HIV, um, we can sometimes slightly speed up their transfer onwards. So that would initially be to Athens, where they could, we hope, find some care um, to start treating their illness. But unfortunately, it, it then sort of becomes out of our hands. Um, we can make recommendations, but we don't control the speed to which people move to the mainland. So, yeah, again. It- yeah, of course. Mm. And... Uh- so it sounds like, do you have a reasonable size kind of dispensary? It sounds like obviously you have certain medications sort of on site in your kind of headquarters, is it? Yeah, I would say we probably have um, a good first line treatment for most of the things that we see. Um, it can, you know, we rely a lot on, on external donations for our medication supply. So it can vary a little bit what we have available in the clinic. Um and certainly it does become a little bit difficult once you're getting to second and third line treatments. Um, but we do have a process for sort of ordering in certain medications if we feel it's indicated in sort of exceptional circumstances. But it's kind of a bit of working with what you've got, I suppose. Um, in yeah. Okay. Now that sounds, all sounds very interesting. And I guess um, if, if we come back to the elephant in the room, that is, that is COVID-19, um, Obviously, at the moment, you're saying there's there's not any cases, but I guess there's, well, similar to everywhere, there's a lot of uh, respiratory symptoms, fever, all of the potential hallmarks of COVID. Um, how are you managing sort of that burden, um, given the background health of, of the population you're looking after as well? Mm. So uh, the, the current system is that we have a kind of triage um, system in place for any patients that want to see a doctor on the day. Um, essentially, if, if you want to be seen by a doctor you sort of, and you don't have an appointment, you queue up at sort of early in the morning on that day. Um, you're screened for fever. You're asked if you've had a new cough in the last 14 days. Um, and if you have either one of those symptoms, you are streamed to a separate area of the clinic um, where we normally have one or two doctors sort of in full PPE um, that can conduct a kind of more COVID-specific consultation. Um and in that, in that system, you see a lot of kind of viral upper respiratory tract infections and things that are kind of low suspicion of COVID. Yeah. Um, but obviously, if you, if you do suspect that someone might be at risk of, of a COVID infection, then uh, the system is to send them to the hospital in the main city um, to have a swab. Okay, so you do have access to testing, but not on site. Yeah, it's sort of limited, limited access to swabs, and and they do take a little bit longer to come back because they have to be sent to to Athens to the mainland to be processed. So it's quite a slow turnaround when we do swab patients. 
Sure, yeah. And and going back to the kind of the mental health side of things, because we appreciate there's obviously, you know, people are coming from really troubled backgrounds potentially with very difficult journeys and some who may have been tortured or raped or all manner of things. Um, so are there any sort of specialist mental health staff on, on site or is it all a case of, you know, you have a chat and kind of do your best and then that's it? So there's kind of varying levels, I would say, of um, psychiatric and psychological support in the camp. Um, I would say at the moment, so at the moment we have one psychiatrist working kind of with us in the clinic, um, but he obviously, because he he's only one person and, and the demand is so huge, he has to be quite selective mm-hmm. with exactly what he'll see and often he will he will only be seeing sort of acute psychosis and that kind of manifestation of of mental illness. Um, There are some psychologists uh, and MSF have some uh, specialist psychologists that work with um, sexual violence, victims of sexual violence and torture. Um, But again, because unfortunately this is something that's happened to so many of the people that live in the camp, um, Mm. they tend to be hugely overburdened and often the waiting times are are, are very long for this kind of service. So we do, you know, ourselves have to see a lot more of of the mental health cases um, and just kind of give them, you know, a bit of basic counselling, a bit of basic sort of psychoeducation and sort of, you know, try and and deal with what we can. Um, But it's obviously difficult for us as clinicians because um, the Greek laws kind of... uh, in state that we as non-Greek doctors um, are not able to prescribe psychiatric medication whilst working in Greece. Oh, okay. So that has to be done by a, a Greek or a qualified psychiatrist that's that's got a license to prescribe. So that can be tricky um, in terms of what mm. we can and can't do for people. Um, and also a little bit of a challenge for us, you know, of, you know, a lot of these kind of manifestations we, of PTSD and of like severe trauma we wouldn't have seen before in our clinical practice at home. So it's kind of a big learning curve for us as well. Yeah, no, it definitely sounds like it. And I guess at least sometimes it's just being there for the patient on a very human level, isn't yeah. it? And just just listening and giving them time and, and compassion and, and things as, as well. Yeah, I think that's but I, I didn't realise that. You, so did you have to join an equivalent of the Greek GMC then? Uh, we did. We did have to register ourselves as, as doctors practising in Greece. Yeah. Um, a kind of quite crude application. Yeah, unfortunately, though, that still doesn't grant us any prescribing yeah. rights um, to sort of SSRIs, even sure. sedating, um, antihistamines and things are all very tightly regulated here. We can't use um, medications like amitriptyline or gabapentin that we might use more freely at home are all very tightly regulated that we can't use here. Mm. Okay, I guess, yeah, you have to have to respect, respect that, obviously, yeah. And... So what else did you have to do? So for people who might be interested in in joining you or volunteering at at, at another time or later on this year, how, how difficult was it to get to, to Lesbos in terms of um, <laughs> I mean, I would say, well, logistics, but also kind of paperwork and, yeah. and admin type stuff? Um, I mean, I would say in normal times, getting to Lesbos from Europe is pretty straightforward. Uh, Athens is a huge international airport and then, it's a quick um, flight from Athens to here, or there's also a ferry. Um, our journey was a bit more convoluted this time because of the international lockdown. It took us kind of four days stopping through Eastern Europe as we came, uh, having swabs in various airports. Um, 
it took us a while and then, yeah. but normally it's fairly straightforward um at the moment the quarantine requirements for all volunteers that are coming into the campus for a week so we make our own quarantine rules uh separate to those for tourists so for example uk citizens can currently come to greece without needing to quarantine um but because of the significance of what a case of covid could do to somebody in the camp Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. It's not worth the risk, is it? There is an absolute minimum of seven days quarantine this end and then whatever your home country return is. In terms of joining, um, well, Kitchenos, it's pretty straightforward. Um, On the website, there's an application that you fill in depending on what your background is. So we have doctors, nurses, paramedics, uh, sometimes medical students who all you know, carry out different roles in the clinic. We often have non-medical volunteers as well who are essential to just keeping the cogs going and running the clinic throughout the day. Um, so the applications are through the website. Um, sometimes there'll be a brief interview over the phone and um, a couple of references, but nothing. Oh, okay. Yeah, now that's that's really interesting. And what sort of what sort of roles can uh, can non-medical people do? um transportation is a big one so just getting volunteers to and from the clinic every day um there's a lot of logistical organizing within the clinic we always need help with the pharmacy organizing medications logging what's coming in what's going out uh helping to organize our waiting rooms particularly at the moment keeping social distancing we have a lot of health promoters who are helping us making sure that every patient that enters the clinic is washing their hands wearing a mask um you know, and just keeping on top of the time schedule. Sometimes we'll get carried away in consultations and need to be reminded that there's X number of people outside that need to be seen. So there's, there's certainly a role for okay. non-medics as well. Yeah, and it sounds like from from what you were saying earlier, anyone with kind of uh, mental health experience, so psychologists, mental health nurses, would also be quite valuable. Definitely, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, we yeah. Could, we're definitely always in need of psychologists that are willing to give up their time yeah well i'll put a link to to the website in in the description for for the podcast and hopefully we'll get some Great, yeah. some people joining in i certainly know that i katrina's well on my list of of places to to uh, to volunteer with except i got caught up with moving house so <laughs> i had to be temporarily delayed but hopefully in the future and can people uh, get involved and, and donate? Do you have a donation page as well? Yeah, so um, I think going to the main Kitchenos website is probably the best as well for that. So Kitchenos runs different fundraisers for different aspects. Um, so people who want to donate to particular causes are welcome to have a look at the pages that are on the website. Um, different volunteers who come at different points will hold fundraisers as well. And they also have a specific COVID um, fundraiser at the moment people that are interested in that and donating to that course. yeah and that's just helping us in installing more sinks around our clinic providing ppe for the doctors um so quite covid specific things aside from running our mm. chronic healthcare service yeah and i guess that's that's the kind of the conflict isn't it it's important as with lots of sort of appeals at the moment obviously covid takes all all the headlines mm-hmm. like rightly so i suppose given what's going on but there's all the uh it's all the chronic medical conditions and other conditions that we also have to think about for the slight medium to longer term planning as well, because they, they don't go away either. Exactly. Yeah. And particularly for the people in the camp, I think there's probably a lot of frustration because there isn't any COVID in the camp and 
there's yeah. a lot of neglect yeah. to their healthcare because of what's going on outside. So yeah, that's that's definitely true. Mm. Yeah, so all food for thought. Very interesting. Well, thank you very much for for joining me on this episode. It, I found it really interesting, and uh, I'd almost like to just get on an airplane and come along and join you because it sounds it sounds really interesting. And uh, yeah, maybe I will before twenty twenty is out. Who knows? And yeah. um, but yeah, thanks very much. And uh, yeah, we'll put a put a link to the Kitchenus website um, in in the podcast. Great. So I hope you I hope you enjoy. The rest of the weather, yeah. you know, it's still nice. It's uh, it's just stopped raining in Wales. Uh, you'll be pleased to know. I don't know. I think we might like some rain. Yeah. We haven't seen any performing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the trouble. We'll complain about the weather regardless of what it's doing. Yeah. That's what we, do, it's what we do. Okay. Well, fantastic to chat. Right. Thank, you. Thank you. Take care. If you've enjoyed listening to our podcast, then check out our website, www.thewildernessmedic.com. If you're interested in being a guest on a future episode or writing a blog for us, then do get in touch and don't forget to follow us on social media. Until next time, take care.